Or not. That's fine, too. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. We are going to get started. <laughs> this is funny. I know, I'll get it. All right. That is just about enough relationship in this place. Cut it out. Ugh. This thing is going to fly all over the place. What's up, Timmy? Thanks for bringing your parents today. Talking to you. I see you in the middle, Timothy. All right, Jeff Kirst. I'm looking at you, buddy. Grab a seat. Well, I love the way you guys are loving on one another. That was awesome this morning. But we are, are going to dive back into the book of Ephesians. And today we have a lot of territory to cover. So if you would, grab your Bible with me right now and go right to Ephesians chapter 1. Because I want to, I want to begin by looking at the passage that we're going to uh, unpack this morning. If you're just joining us, we have spent the last couple of weeks beginning through the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians. And, and Paul is an apostle of Jesus. He has already spent two missionary journeys in Ephesus. This is a church that he helped kind of start up, although he's writing this letter to many, many house churches that meet in and around the city of Ephesus. And the beginning of his letter, the first 14 verses, are really focused less on them and much more on their God. And he spends those first 14 verses beginning to unpack the different blessings that God has showered. It really is just a song of praise. And he's unpacking the different ways that God has blessed us in Christ. So, for instance, he blessed us by choosing us in Christ. He blessed us by predestining us to adoption. And we, we spent the entire conversation last week unpacking what that means. But we are predestined to adoption in him. We've been redeemed and forgiven in him. He made known to us his plans in Christ. And then finally, as we'll read in verse 13 here, you also, those, those Gentiles that he's writing to living in and around Ephesus, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in Christ with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a mark. God's saying, this one's mine. But it is also the way in which God adopted us into his family and ultimately empowered us to be his representatives. So that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So that has been all a song of praise to God, thanking God for all that he's done. And now he shifts his focus in the latter half of chapter 1 back to the people that he's writing to. And he says, for this reason, because you believed in Christ, have been marked by the Holy Spirit and have been adopted into his family, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, some of us at that point might write the prayer that we are, you, know, you ever like text somebody and want to like, I'm praying for you. And then you go, well, you know what? Why don't I just pray for them via text or via whatever? He doesn't necessarily write out the text of his prayer. Rather, he tells them what he has specifically been praying for. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Good stuff. And we read that and, and, and we get some of it out of it, but I would not be surprised if for some of you, about halfway through there, your eyes kind of glazed over and you just stopped paying attention. Because it doesn't feel like he's talking directly to me. It doesn't necessarily, I don't, he's not telling me you need to do this, so therefore I'm, I'm waiting for that, what should I do? And so this might be for some of you a portion of scripture that when you're reading through it, you gloss over it, getting to the meaty bits where he tells you what you should do and how you should live so you can have your best life now. And I think part of the problem is that we're lacking a lot of context for what he's writing. Because think about this for a moment. This letter that we are reading right now, called the letter of the Ephesians, was written over 2,000 years ago to a people who were living in a radically different context to the one that we are living in. And imagine if somebody 2,000 years from now got a hold of one of my emails that I was sending to, to a contemporary. And imagine if they read something like, hey, I saw your pics on Instagram. Looks like you and the fam had a great time at the happiest place on earth. How were the lines? You know, last time we were there, we got fast passes and we got to do a whole lot more. So when are we going to get together again? You want to meet up at Sidecar? That is one line that I'm willing to wait in. Let me know. So imagine that they grab that thing. And then they begin to go, well, where is the happiest place on earth, right? And what is a fast pass? Is that a pass that you get to get out of fasting? Because if so, in, like I want one. And then, and then why would there be a line for, to go see a sidecar? That seems strange, right? So you begin to understand that context is crucial. And if you are lacking context, then you can read something and really not understand it. And so what I want to do this morning is we are going to unpack these verses. But first, I want to give us a little bit of a background. I want us to understand the, the, the cultural milieu into which Paul is writing, because the people, his audience, the Ephesians living in and around that city, had a very powerful cultural ethos that was affecting them. I don't know why I felt the need to use both milieu and ethos in a couple of sentences. I apologize. We're done with those words. All right? So let me give you just a little bit of background, and for that, I have borrowed Jimmy's handy-dandy laser pointer. Can we throw the first thing up on the board here? And I'm going to have to get close, because apparently on these kind of boards, red laser pointer doesn't work. And even green, not so great. Okay, a little bit. You can see it just a little bit, maybe. It's right, it's right here, and it disappears. <laughs> this right here, and if you can't see it, you've got it in your outline, all right? This right here, right in the middle, right under that big word that is turkey, for those of you who have not had, gone to see your optometrist lately, is the word Ephesus. That is the city of Ephesus. And as you'll notice, it is, this is doing no good for you, is it? None at all. Okay, whatever. So, left side, this is all the Roman Empire. Everything we see in here around the Mediterranean Sea is the Roman Empire. And right in the middle of it is the city of Ephesus. 
It was a port town. It had perhaps the most, one of the largest and most influential ports in the world at that time. So because the city of Ephesus was at a crossroads, Eastern Roman Empire, Western Roman Empire coming together there because they had a major seaport where people would bring it throughout the Mediterranean Sea, unload their stuff, and then take it along the Roman roads to distribute it everywhere, whatever it is that they are trying to distribute. The city of Ephesus held a tremendous sway, both culturally, economically, and spiritually, over the entire Roman Empire. It was a big city. It was a big deal. However, probably their greatest export was not economic. It was actually theological. Because in the city of Ephesus, right in the center, can we go to the next slide, was the temple to Artemis. Artemis was a Greek goddess. We'll go into her in just a moment. But the temple sat on a hillside overlooking Ephesus, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would come from far and wide to see this place with their own eyes. This is what one of the uh, contemporaries during that time, a guy named Antipater, who wrote about the seven wonders of the ancient world, this is what he wrote as he begins to talk about all of the different wonders that he's seen with his own eyes. He goes, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, which is so wide that a road, it's a road for chariots. I've seen the statue of Zeus done by Alphaeus. I've seen the hanging gardens and the colossus of the sun and the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. This was one of the biggest... Oh, it was up there the whole time. How nice. Okay, this was one of the biggest... Uh, wonders that people would come from far and wide to see, but it wasn't just the building that they came to see. It wasn't just the 127 columns that they wanted to see. It was what was inside that was most important. It was what was inside of that edifice that they absolutely wanted to come see. Can we go to the next slide? This is Artemis. Supposedly, the original statue was carved from a meteorite that had fallen from the heavens, so they said. And they worshipped Artemis, the entire building was built up around her. In a little bit, we'll talk about what some of the iconography that we see going on on her symbolizes. But here's what you want to know. They took goddesses from the east and the west, and they slammed them together to create Artemis. From the east, they took the goddess Sybil. She was a fertility goddess. You can see some fertility signs there. Those are, I don't know if those are udders or eggs or something else. But uh, she's very fertile. Right? So they took the, the goddess Sybil, who was a fertility goddess. And then from the west, they took the goddess Diana, who was the goddess of the hunt. And they slammed those two things together. And then they added a whole bunch of other character traits to Artemis so that by the time Paul showed up in that city, she was, bar none, the most worshipped, most celebrated, and to their thinking, most powerful deity in the entire Roman pantheon. She was it, at least in that region of Asia that is today modern-day Turkey. Now, let's pause for just a moment and think about this for a moment. Why? Because one of the, one of the major exports out of Ephesus were actually silver shrines to Artemis so that people could take an idol home with them and worship Artemis in the sanctity of their own home. So here's the question I have. Why do people do that? Why do people grab hold of things, oftentimes that are made by human hands, and worship them 
as if they somehow have power. What is the draw for human beings? And when you boil it all down, when you kind of scrape underneath the surface of all of it, it comes down to control. We, as human beings, crave control over that which matters to us. Or, to put it a slightly different way, we crave control over those things which we fear so that we can somehow protect ourselves. And when we don't feel like we have control in and of ourselves, either we're not strong enough or we don't have enough you know, resources to bring to bear on it or our, our standing is not such that we can control where we're at, then we begin to look to other things that we think can promise us control. And this goes back from the very beginning of humanity. I mean, go to the Garden of Eden for a moment. Consider this. Adam and Eve were created to be God's representatives, ministering alongside of him and caring for his creation. But in Genesis 3, we see the serpent slithering in, and he, and he begins to sow doubt about the truthfulness the trustworthiness of God. And he points to Adam and Eve and says, you know, God's holding out on you because he has made you deficient because you don't know the difference between good and evil. And suddenly they're going, you're right. We don't even know what those words mean. But we want to. And our father has held out on us. He's made us deficient. And in that moment, they begin looking around for something that can give them control over an area that they fear is somehow deficient. And they look at the tree, and even though God has said, don't touch that fruit, they do it anyway. Because the urge to have control over that is enough that they are willing to disobey. And we see the carnage that kind of comes out of that. Or take the people of Egypt. Here's a people that live on the edge of a desert with the lifeblood is the Nile River that flows down the center of their country. And they live on its banks. And their life depends upon the sun not shining so brightly that it destroys their crops and the waters not overflowing its banks. And so is it any wonder why the people of Egypt would worship as two of the greatest gods in their pantheon, Ra the sun god and Hopi the god of the Nile. Those are two of their greatest gods because they control areas supposedly that the Egyptians cared about. Does this make sense? We worship those things that seem to, that promise to give us control over areas that we are concerned about or areas that we fear. Now let's go to the Ephesians for a moment. Here comes Artemis. Artemis bringing with her all of her fertile splendor was supposedly a goddess who looked over children in utero and ultimately decided whether or not they should be born at all. According to the mythology, when she felt like a child should not be born, she would shoot flaming arrows, and that's why you would have a miscarriage. If you are a woman living in or around the city of Ephesus, and you desire to have a child, a healthy child, and you desire not to die in childbirth, do you think there would be any motivation to worship Artemis? You better believe it. You might not be able to see this, but around her neck is a necklace that contains the signs of the zodiac. According to their mythology, Artemis held the fates in her hand that she had control over the fates. And when you are a people living within the Greco-Roman culture that believe that your entire life is controlled by fate and that you have no ability to change your own fate, do you think there would be a motivation to worship a goddess that is supposedly over fate? Because if you want to change your fate, she's the one who can do it. 
Furthermore, we see along the sides of her headdress, and if you were to see the skirt further down, there are spirits, demons, other things that are carved into it because she was supposedly the goddess over the kingdom of the air, the spirit realm. She, the, the, the ancient Greeks and, and um, Romans believed that there was a spiritual realm that was so packed full of spirits that if you were to be able to see it, you couldn't put a needle between one spirit and another. That's how close they were kind of together. And they affect your life all the time, but you don't realize it. But if you want to somehow control the spirits that have an impact on you, oh, well, worship Artemis. She's got control over them. She was also the patron goddess of Ephesus. Her, her crown looks a little bit like the walls of Ephesus. And they believed that she not only had power over children, power over the spirit realm, power over fate, but that she was the protector and the provider for Ephesus. And because of this, they began to lavish her with titles. She was known to the Ephesians as the Savior, as Lord as the queen of the cosmos, and as their mother God. These kind of titles were thrown around. She was the only one that could be trusted with their lives. And so people came from far and wide. People began to, they would bring uh, their offerings. Kings would come. Uh, Merchants who were trying to be successful in business would bring some of the first fruits of their business Even travelers who were coming to Ephesus would bring money and they would lay it at the statue's feet. So much so that the temple of Artemis became the largest bank in all of the known world at that time. This was a powerful cult to a a pagan deity that cast a wide shadow over all of Ephesus. And by the way, Paul has already run headlong into the cult of Artemis. Keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 1, but go with me to Acts chapter 19. It's just a couple of books back. If you hit Romans, go a little further left. If you hit one of the Gospels, go right. If you hit the Old Testament, you have gone too far. Acts chapter 19. Paul, this is, this is the second time that Paul is coming through Ephesus in his missionary journeys. It's his third total missionary journey. Paul is traveling. He's come through Macedonia. He's traveling through Ephesus. He ends up spending about two years there. And while he is there, he begins to proclaim that not Artemis, but Jesus is Savior. Not Artemis, but Jesus is Lord. Not Artemis, but Jesus is the king of the cosmos and that he alone can save you. Verse 24 of chapter 19. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought a lot of business for the craftsmen there, he called all those craftsmen together along with the workers and related trades, and he said, hey, you know, guys, that we receive a good income from this business, making idols. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Can you believe the audacity of this guy? Verse 27. There is danger, not only to our trade that we will lose, or that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited because I know that that was his motivation. 
And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Guys, we got to do something. Well, when they heard this, they were furious. And they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed headlong into the theater there together. This theater could hold something like 25,000 people, and it begins to swell with people who are angry. Paul himself wants to go into the theater. He wanted to go and help out. And his disciples are like, dude, you cannot go there. They will tear you limb from limb. Please stay, there, stay out. Verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some of the officials in the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing and others another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. It's like, dude, this is so fun. Everybody's going, let's go. What are they saying? Our greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Totally, yeah, we're in. Right? They didn't even know why they were there. Verse 33, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions. Hey, tell them this. Kind of like my wife whenever I'm on the phone. She's like, Eric, tell them this. I'm like, you just have the conversation, please. Never works that way. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. This, this was the power of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. This was the shadow that she cast across this entire region. This was the power, dominion, and authority that Paul is addressing when he begins to pray for the people of uh, the believers in Ephesus. And so now, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. And I apologize to all those children who started crying when I was yelling during that time. Now that my kids are old enough, I have no problem raising my voice a little bit higher. But I remember those days. And so, let's begin back here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is the place where he makes the transition from talking about the ways that we have been blessed by God. Those blessing upon blessing upon blessing in Christ that we have been chosen, that we have been adopted, that we have been forgiven, that we have been redeemed, that we have been uh, filled with his Holy Spirit so that we can be his representatives. And he says now, for this reason, because you have believed, because you are now marked as one of his kids, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And now again, he begins to enumerate the things that he's been praying for them for in light of the spiritual atmosphere that they're living under, this cloud of Artemis worship. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom, by the way, is glorious, but we can also call him Father. He's not just God. He's not just creator. He's our daddy because we've been adopted. So I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, is this the Holy Spirit he's talking about that would bring wisdom and revelation? Some theologians suggest it probably isn't because he's already given them the Holy Spirit as a mark of ownership. This instead, and it can easily be translated this way, is simply a spirit, an ability to be wise and discerning. And either way you read it, the point of it is this. I keep praying 
that our Father would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, let me make one really important point we don't miss here, and we'll come back to it a little bit later. He's not praying that they would know more about him. This is not an intellectual endeavor that he is proscribing. This is 100% a prayer that they would know the heart of their father because lots of people know about him. The Pharisees knew a whole lot about him and completely missed him and missed all that he was doing. So his prayer is that you would know the father more. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Power is a very important point of this prayer. Because remember, he's writing to a people who are sitting in the shadow of what is arguably the most powerful goddess throughout all of Asia. She certainly seems, or at least her worshipers, hold the power. Those temple priestesses held the power in that town. The people that were blessed by and affirmed in their leadership by the cult of Artemis, they held the power. And so he's saying, hey, by the way, our Father God, he's the one who holds the power. He is the one that is powerful. And it's not even a competition between Artemis and our God. Verse 20. Let's back up just a little bit. Second half of verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength that our God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So you want to talk about Artemis having power over life and death. You want to talk about Artemis being able to protect people. Look at what God has done. He raised Jesus back from the dead. We've seen him with our own eyes, so much so that his own disciples, Jesus' disciples, were willing to die for their belief that he was alive. I am willing to die for lots of things, but I would never be willing to die for something I knew to be a lie. And that's probably the greatest argument that I can make, that the tomb was actually empty. He's saying, listen, we have seen the power of our God. He has raised Jesus back to life. And not only that, but he has now seated him at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is in the position of power, not Artemis. Jesus is the one with all the titles. You call Artemis Savior? Uh -uh, Jesus is our Savior. You call Artemis Lord? Jesus is our Lord. You call Artemis Queen of the Cosmos? Jesus. Not only was there and present in speaking the world into existence, but he is also helping in holding the world together. He owns everything because it was created for him and by him. Therefore, you want to talk about power, you want to talk about authority, it's Jesus and not Artemis that you should be worshiping. So, he exerted, the power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. Savior, Lord, King, all of those belong to him, not to Artemis. So do not worry. Do not be overcome. Verse 22. 
And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Now, what is the church? For those of you who go to the 101 class, I'm giving you an answer to a question I will ask you later. What is the church? Here's the hint. It's not a building. This is not this church. This building is just a place that we gather. We are the church. The people who are called by God's name, the people who have put their faith in him, the people who are found in Christ. You know, said, Jesus, I don't want you to just be the savior of my life. I want you to be my Lord. That is the church. And, and by the way, how many churches are there in Costa Mesa? I'm going to ask you that later. Just one. Just one. Jesus is the head of all of us. We may gather in different spots, maybe 54 different locations that we gather, but there is only one church. We are not in competition because we have one head and one Savior and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so he says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We get to be the hands, the feet, the fingers, the tongue, speaking the praises of our God, sharing the good news. We get to be the ears that hear the hurting people around us, the eyes that see those who are walking in darkness. We get to be the kind of people who are used as ambassadors to move towards him. And so Paul is saying, listen, I know it may seem overwhelming that this city is in open conflict with the gospel message that you've heard. And many people will say that's not good news because Artemis has taken care of all of those things. And I want you to rest in the hope that you have found in our Lord and our Savior. It is not Artemis, it is Jesus Christ. Now this is all interesting and we can see how this would be relevant to the Ephesians living some 2,000 years ago under the, the shadow of Artemis. But why does this matter for us living in the year 2018 in Orange County. Why does this matter? I would suggest it matters because we are a whole lot like those Ephesians. We also have a tendency to run after anything that we think might be able to give us control over the things that matter to us or the things that we fear. And no, we don't have silver shrines to Artemis in our homes. But you better believe that we have a whole slew of American idols that we worship as well. I don't have time to give you an exhaustive list. Let me just point out four of them that I've identified as American idols. Number one, we worship image, particularly body image, in this region, in, in Southern California whether it be because of Hollywood being close by or the, the, the kind of rise of pornography or whatever it happens to be, there's a spirit, an air of fixation on how we look. And there's this mindset that the less of us there is, the more value we have. Or for some of you guys, you got to get swole, right, Brandon? So they're going to be like, the more of you there is, the more value you have in boot camp, whatever. And because of that, we have this inexorable pull to worship at the altar of Weight Watchers or CrossFit or Botox or bulimia. These things reach for our heart because we think my value is found in how I look. Others of us, we fear 
the direction our country may be going at one point or another. And because we fear that if the wrong people get into the positions of power, it will, it, they will steer us off a cliff, we begin to worship a political party or maybe even a specific politician and say, this is our savior. This is the person we need. And if the other person gets into office, we're pulling our hair out and going, we need to do anything we can. And you begin to see why people will begin to only listen to the news stations that have the same bias they do, that say what their itching ears want to hear. We worship politics and politicians and and political parties in our country, and it begins to tear us apart. We stop listening to one another, and we only listen to people who say the same things we think already. Some of us, some of us, most of us, worship stuff. We worship accumulation as if our value is somehow tied to what we have been able to accumulate, whether it's a home or the things within our home. And so we worship at the altar of Amazon and Ikea and Target and Macy's or wherever. It could even be the Salvation Army. We still worship at the altar. We've got to get more stuff. And then we fill our homes up to overflowing to the point where we have to go rent storage space to get yesterday's stuff out so we can get more stuff today. We love stuff. And that's a very Western term, stuff. We love it. Finally, and probably most importantly, is, is this, little, this little God, Right? The paper on which ironically is printed, In God We Trust, has for many of us become the very God in which we trust. Because what happens when life goes sideways? What happens when that proverbial rainy day comes along? What do you do? What do you turn to? For most of us, our first impulse is to turn to our bank account because that can help hold us up. That can be the safety net that we lean on. And yeah, we're going to pray to to God. We'll throw up a, a spiritual Hail Mary. But at the end of the day, it's the printed paper that is our Savior in our mind, although we may not articulate it that way. And so what do we do? We sacrifice, because that's all worship is, is sacrificing things in order to get more of and be closer to and honor. We order our lives around accumulating more money. We sacrifice time with our families. We sacrifice uh, the freedom to do things that we love in order to go and work at jobs that we hate because you got to live. you got to keep up with the Joneses and Dagnabbit, Clarissa and Mike run really fast, right? We, we scrape together as much of it as we can so that we will be safe when life hits. And I just wonder what Paul would say to us today if he was writing to the American church in 2018. I suspect that he would begin by reminding us that the power is not found in our money. It's not found in our waistline. It's not found in a political party. It's not found in what we have accumulated. The power is found in God, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And I believe that his prayer would be the same one that he had for the Ephesians. That our Father would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know him better. Not just know about him, but know him. 
Because if we're honest, and I try to be, you know, it's, it's usually a good policy as a pastor to be honest. If we're honest with ourselves, I fear that we have made God really small. We tried to shrink him down much like the um, idol makers in Ephesus did. They tried to take Artemis, this supposedly great goddess, and shrink her down to the size of a silver shrine so that people could take her home with them and have some control. All you got to do is worship the right way, say the right things, and she will give you what you want. Your own cosmic vending machine. And I fear that we've done that in a lot of ways to our Father God. That we have shrunk him down to the size of, of... I don't know, a pill that we can take. You get a little bit of Jesus in you to have your best life now. Or we've shrunk him down to be our genie in a bottle that you just have with you. So that as you're going through life and something goes sideways, you always know you can call on him. And you gotta, you gotta rub him, the, the bottle the right way. You gotta pray the right way. You maybe have to go to church a couple of times to get him to pay attention. Maybe you have to throw some coin in the, in the basket when it goes by just so that he'll know you're really, really, you know, worth listening to. But so long as you do the right things in our mind, some of us approach God as if he is just a cosmic vending machine here to give us what we want so that we have control over our lives. So that when our kids get sick, he's there to make them better. Or when, as one of my friends who, who, who has been pregnant, when, when it seems like the baby is not making it and maybe going through um, a, a miscarriage, that God is there to protect the baby. Or, you know, uh, when, when a loved one begins to pass away, Tim and Susan Bundy are sitting at Tim's mother's bedside right now waiting for her to take her last breath. When that begins to happen, God, if you're there, protect my mom. And we begin to try to add God to our lives, to make our lives more manageable. And the mindset there is that we are big and he is small. That we ultimately, it is about our lives and the thread of our story that matters. And we're adding him as a bit player into our story so that we get the best life that we could possibly have. And the message of Paul's prayer, the message of scripture, the reminder that we are faced with this morning is that is not who God is. He's not a bit player on the stage of life in which we are the central characters. We are the supporting cast members. It is his story. That's all history is, is his story. When you read scripture, this is about him from beginning to end. This is about our father God, his heart, his purpose, the reason, the rationale for creating us, his desire to be reconciled with us, and what he is planning on doing in redeeming the world and remaking it so that we can spend eternity with him, being about his business. There is a grand epic story that has been being written long before the world was ever formed with a word. And the crazy, audacious claim of the gospel is that we get to lay down our own little stories and join him in his epic narrative of reconciling the world to himself. That we get to be ambassadors of this good news in our workplaces, in our schools, where we go work out, where we get our coffee, that we get to be his representatives. And here's, here's my desire as a father. I do not want to raise my boys with a small picture of God. 
as if they are the ones who are in control and he is simply the tool they use to get what they want. Because when they don't get what they want, when prayers are not answered in the affirmative every single time, what does that do to their faith? It causes them to say, well, maybe I need to find my answers in someone else rather than recognizing that sometimes the most loving thing that our Father God can say to us is no. Because that is not my will. And at the end of the day, it is not my job to do your will, he says to us. I have created you to bring about my will. Because this is my creation. I am God and you are not. And I love you. You're my kids. And I want you to be about my business. But if I allow my sons to think that God is small, then very quickly he is going to become boring. He's going to be weakened. I really think there's a reason why the second of the commandments was do not create an idol using anything in creation to try to articulate to one another what I am. Because here's the problem. The moment you start making an idol about who God is, you automatically limit him in your mind. He becomes a means to an end and you hold the idol, therefore you get to control what he does. And in so doing, You mentally, not that we can shackle God, but we mentally shackle him in our minds. And so then we resist him when he wants to do other than what we want. And we do not want to run in the same direction that the Pharisees did, thinking they know God and completely missing his heart. So I want to invite the worship team to come forward. And this morning, I simply invite you to lay down the small narrative of your own story and recognize that we are invited to be part of a much larger epic story that God is writing in and through the body of Jesus Christ, us. We get to be agents of bringing about his will in this world. And I just want to close by praying the same prayer that Paul prayed over the Ephesians. I want to pray it over us. So you should just close your eyes. Let me pray this, and then we will begin to respond by worshiping our Father. I pray, Father God, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that we might know you better. We don't want to know more about you. We want to know you. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that it would be enlightened in order that we might know the hope which you have called us to experience, the riches of being in relationship with you and the glorious inheritance that we have to look forward to of eternal life with you. And we want to rest in the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power that raised Jesus from the dead and has seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms above every power. Above failure. Above, above, above dissension in our families and broken hearts above addiction, above people who are dying all around us with no hope and angry that this world is so broken. Even over the grave, you are above all things, and even death does not get the last word because of what you did on the cross, Jesus. That's the hope we have. That's the power we have. The same power, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. So may we 
be your representatives? Would you use us, shape us into tools to bring about your purpose and your plans so that you get the glory? Would you build your kingdom and use us as the tools in your hands to do so? For your name's sake, we pray these things, Jesus.